we are doing a two-week series called Broken. And here's kind of where it's generating from. All of us have our homes, and probably if we walked into any of our homes, there would be broken things within those homes. Um, I confessed last week that Denise might have married me for a lot of things, but the ability to repair things is not why she married me. I have no ability to repair things. I have no desire to repair things around our house. So you walk in our house, and there may be one of the cabinet doors that's kind of leaning at a 90-degree angle because one of the hinges is broken, or we may have a lamp that works or doesn't work, or may have a little curio sitting on the shelf that's got a little broken hand that's been glued 16 times on there. Um, I just don't like to fix things. And so here's what I've learned in my life. When something becomes broken around the house, we really have two options. One is just to ignore it, okay? Just let it be broken. Even if that, that hinge on that cabinet door is not really working right, if it's hanging kind of at a little angle, it's keeping most of the dust out, right? So I just ignore it and we can make it work the right way. Or the other option we have is not ignore it, but just discard it, okay? Just get rid of it, don't have it, and, and just don't worry about it any longer. But there's a third option when it comes to things broken around the house, and that is we can actually repair the broken object, right? Now, when I say things around the house, I'm not just talking about the things, I'm talking about the relationships also. Because we all have relationships within our home, whether they're immediate family, brother, sister, children, even extended family. We may have friends, but we have relationships around the homes that we live that are as broken as some of the items within our, in our home. And we often do the same thing to those. We just ignore them. Just let's act like that person is not there. Let's not even deal with the dysfunction. Let's not deal with the, the, the discord that we have between one another. And we just ignore the problem and many times ignore the relationship. Or oftentimes in these broken relationships, we discard them. We treat relationships much like we do something disposable that we buy from the store. When you're done with it, just throw it away and it's not there any longer. And neither one of those are healthy options when it comes to dealing with broken relationships within our lives. But just like the broken things, there's also a third option. We don't call it repair the relationship, but we reconcile the relationship. And so last week, we began a two-week series that we're going to wrap up today over what does it mean to have reconciled relationships within our lives. And I've got to tell you, I've been here nine months now. Of all the sermons I've preached in the nine months, I've had more comments, responses, and questions from last week's sermon than I did all the other sermons put together. And here's what I've recognized. It kind of hit a chord, didn't it? Um, many of us probably, maybe even all of us have relationships within our lives that we realize that we're not really taken care of or trying to repair like the way God may want us to. And so let me just share with you some of the responses or questions that I've gotten over the last week. One of them, somebody wrote into me and said this, I don't even want a relationship with this person. So you're talking about reconciliation over here, but their claim is, why would I want to reconcile when I don't even want a relationship with him? Let me remind us this, when it comes to relationships and reconciliation, the idea and the goal of reconciliation is not to necessarily become best friends with them. Now, you might have been best friends at one time, or it might have been your favorite sibling at one point, but reconciliation doesn't mean we have to take that relationship back to where it was as far as how much we got along with one another. In fact, I would say this, there are some relationships within our lives that we need healthy boundaries. Maybe that, that relationship is, is unsafe physically. Maybe emotionally, that's the toxic relationship. Here's what we have to understand, that reconciliation is more about the heart than it is the hangout. 
And if you're taking notes, you can write that one in there. Reconciliation is more about the heart than it is hanging out with that person. That there is that bitterness inside of us. There's that frustration. There is that that lingering just angst that you have towards that person. That that is what God is wanting to restore and repair and reconcile, not necessarily make you the best buds that run around every Friday night together again. So that's one of the responses I've had. What if I don't even want to hang out with that person? Here's another response I've got this past week. I've already tried. Keith, you're talking about reconciliation. This relationship I have, it's been broken for the past 10 years. And there's been a couple of times that I tried to reach out. I did my part. I tried. Here's what I would remind all of us. When it comes to reconciliation, the goal, even if that relationship is not reconciled, even if you've tried in the past, the goal is to always keep the welcome mat out. I'm afraid here's what we do sometimes going, okay, I need to try to reconcile. So we open the door going, hey, if you step over here to my house on my territory, on my terms, we'll probably fix this relationship. Oh, you don't want to? And we slam the door shut. But really, we're simply just wanting to keep that welcome mat out to say, if there's a time in the future that we can bring our lives back together, whether physically or emotionally, then that's what we're wanting to do. It's about getting back to, not getting back at And let's be honest, in some of our broken relationships that you said I've already tried, there's probably in every one of us a little bit of passive aggressiveness in there. I've already tried, but I'm putting all the blame on them. And so in reconciliation, our goal is really to get back to that person, not get back at that person. It's not about punishing that person in our passive aggressiveness. It's really about pursuing that person in a relationship. And even third, again, these are just this past week, the many responses and comments and emails and letters that I've gotten. Here's the third response. And this one may be the most familiar one, the one that I heard the most. But Keith, the broken relationship, it's not my fault. Anybody feel that one before? Yeah. If they're in the room, probably don't raise your hand right now. That's not a good opportunity to raise your hand. Yeah. But it's not my fault. We learned last week as we looked at the service last week. If you missed last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it because there was some good stuff there that Jesus shared with us on how we need to respond to relationships. But what we learned last week, it's not whose fault it is. As a follower of Jesus, it becomes our responsibility to initiate the reconciliation. In fact, last week, if you came, we sat, you sat through about a 35-minute message. If you want me to summarize the message in one sentence from last week, here's how I put it. Reconciliation begins with us regardless of the fuss. Can I say that again? You're going, man, Keith, if you would just preach that short every week, you'd be a whole lot better preacher, right? So let me just summarize the message last week in one sentence. Reconciliation begins with us regardless of the fuss. Here's what we need to understand. That reconciliation should always begin with the most mature person. And do you know who the most mature person is and the problem of your relationships you have right now? You. And you know why I know that? Because I can read your mind. Anytime you've told somebody, recounted the conflict, recounted what took place, you told the story of this disagreement you have with this person, who did you always make out to be the better person? You. You. Okay, you always made yourself out to be more mature. You always made, always made yourself out to be more likable. You always became the innocent part of the problem and the other person was the perpetrator in it. Am I right? So you are the more mature person. 
So when it comes to reconciliation, the more mature person, person should always take the first step, the first move, and guess who that is? That's you. So that's three of the responses I've gotten. But here's the fourth response. And probably if I said all of them together, this is the one that I, I heard the most. Many of you said, Keith, you said something last week. God's word spoke to me and I was convicted. That I, I, I recalled somebody in my mind. I recalled somebody in my life and I realized there's a broken relationship. And I really want to take a step to reconcile. But the most descriptive way that one person said it to me, but I feel like my feet are in concrete. Like my heart is leaning in. My mind is even thinking about it a little bit. My, 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 my just desire is there, but I go this past week to do something and it's like, I can't. My feet are frozen there in concrete. I don't think I have it in me to make the first move. And so the question is, so what, is, what do you do if that's you? What if, if the Holy Spirit's been nudging you to try to step towards reconciliation, but the fear, the unknown, how the other person's going to respond, the, the caution of rejection, the, the, the wonder is this little thing you're trying to fix and blow up to be something bigger. And so you're just like stuck. What should you do? Well, I don't have any, any good words for you. Okay. You ask me, what should you do? I don't have any good wisdom for you, but I know where there's good wisdom and it's always found in God's word. And so we're going to look at Matthew chapter seven today. And Jesus has some very timely words for all of us in this area. How, how, how do we go to take that first step? Now, it's in Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to read verses 3, 4, and 5. But as you look at this passage, you may recognize it. If you've done any Bible study, you've kind of grown up around church. It's really a section of passage that's about judging one another. And Jesus is beginning to speak to those who feel like they're being judged, who want to judge. And you may pause there going, hang on a second, Keith. If this passage is about judging, what does it have to do with reconciliation? Well, wouldn't we all agree that if there's conflict in a relationship, there's probably a whole lot of judging going on in that relationship? And so I think this passage has everything that we need to understand what's the steps that we take in reconciliation. And so here's what it says in Matthew chapter 7, and I'm going to start in verse 3. And Jesus says this, And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have such a log in your own eye? Why even worry about reconciling with this person and why even worry about all the things they've done to you that you're trying to reconcile when the fact of the matter is you got more problems inside your own life? Here's what I've realized. Most of our unresolved conflict with another person is no longer, or I'm sorry, most of our unresolved conflict with another person is about an incident or something rather than that person. Now, let me give you a perfect example. Let's pretend that once again, you, you go back in time and you're the parent of a 15-year-old teenage girl. I know, it's just pretending, so don't get depressed right now, okay? But you go back in time and you're the parent of a 15-year-old 15 15 teenage girl. And it's a Friday night and your teenage daughter looks at you and says, hey, I know my curfew's at 11. Can I stay out till midnight tonight because there's this really big party and everybody's going to be there. And so I, can I stay longer in, in my time out tonight? And you being the wise parent realize nothing good happens after 11 o'clock. So you know what? Nope, your curfew's 11. You need to be home at 11. 
And your teenage daughter, this 15-year-old loving daughter looks at you and she runs and she gives you a big hug and she kisses you on the cheek and she says, thanks for being such a caring parent. I totally understand about you not letting me stay out to be 11 o'clock at night. Yeah, right. In your dreams, right? Remember, I said this whole, whole thing is dreams here, right? No, it doesn't happen that way, does it? She looks at you and she screams, you are the worst parents in the world. You are the strictest parents. Nobody has parents as mean as you. Everyone is staying out till midnight. In fact, all my friends, none of them have, have curfews. You are the worst parents. I wish I would have never have to call you mom and dad. And you're sitting there thinking, Jesus, you better come now because this is not going to turn out good in this family right now. And so y'all go back and forth, back and forth. And she goes, so? And you're like, so what? So can I stay out past midnight? Past 11 o'clock, you're like, no, curfew's 11. And if you keep pushing me, you're not going out at all tonight. Anybody been there before? I thank God every day my daughter's 28 years old and living on her own right now. I mean, it's just a good feeling. I love her, but she's better to live there. And so this night turns out bad, but it doesn't stop there because you know how that goes. She goes to the room and she slams the door, which makes you matter. And then you say something, your spouse says something to you, then y'all kind of start going at each other. And it just, just starts to bubble over inside the house. Finally, it's time for your daughter to go out. And as she's walking out, she says something under her breath and you start to say something. You realize, no, I'm going to use wisdom. Just keep my mouth quiet. But you're watching that clock all night long thinking, I hope she comes in one minute past 11 because I'm going to bust her good on this one, right? She comes home one time. She goes straight to her room. The next morning she gets up. There is still conflict in the house and it's back and forth and back and forth. And it goes on for two or three days. Let me ask you a question. Was the conflict you had as a parent with her? Or let me ask it another way. Was the conflict she had, the, the, the frustration she had, the anger she had, was it with you or the conflict? It was really about the conflict, wasn't it? It was really not about two people mad at each other. But, but here's the deal. We can't be mad at a, con, at, at, at a curfew. We have to be mad at a person. It wouldn't make sense if the 15-year-old daughter goes, oh, I hate curfews. I'm so mad at curfews. I wish I'd never had. No, she has to be mad at a person. So here's what we do within our frustration, within our anger, within our conflict. We make it about a person and not an object. And that compounds the very thing you're going through. Now, I'm guessing I could tell this story and we can take out a 15-year-old daughter and put in somebody in your life. You can take out curfew and put in some other situation but if you think back to the conflict, to what broke that relationship, it really wasn't about two people. It was about something in that. And so when Jesus says this, why worry about the speck in your brother's eye when you have a log in your eye? Here's what he's saying. He's going, you need to focus on the right thing. And the right thing you need to focus on is not even the thing in your, in your other person's eye. You need to focus on what's in your life. In fact, here's another way to say it. Jesus says, you are so focused on what they did that you don't deal with what you did. You're so pointing fingers, look, 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 that we don't take any time to look at our own self and the part we played in it. Can I be real honest with you? The story I just told you wasn't a made up scenario. It happened about once a month in our family. And my daughter might have been wrong because how she responded. But her father never helped the conflict. Her father's response never made it better. 
It never brought the two parties together. And so in an instance like this, if she leaves the house, I'm going, oh God, would you help her see that speck in her eye? God's going, but you got a log in your eye, Keith. And so that's the first thing. This this is what Jesus says next. He said in in verse um, four, how can you think of saying something to your friend? Let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye. Do you know what we normally do when there's conflict, when we have it falling out with somebody? This right here. We cross our arms and we're thinking, well, (laughs) we wouldn't have had this conflict if they wouldn't have done what they did. If they would be more mature, if they would be more responsible, if they wouldn't be so dysfunctional in how they approach things, we wouldn't have this conflict. And you're going, I don't want this conflict, but I want to resolve it. But since it's their fault, I'll just stand here like this till she come, the he or she or they come make things right. The moment in relationships that we cross our arms in a stubborn way, we become more immature as the other party. We become more irresponsible than the other party. We become more dysfunctional in our approach than the other person. And so what Jesus is trying to get across is he's talking about this this judgment more than judgment. He's talking about conflict and resolving it. He's going, if you ever want to get past something, if you ever want to get past conflict and you really want to move to reconciliation, you've got to stop pointing your finger at the other person and you really have to look in a mirror and examine your own life and what part you play in it. Because look what he says next in verse five, one word. He describes not the person that we're pointing a finger at. He describes the person in the mirror. And he goes, you're a hypocrite. Now, that hypocrite, you can call me a lot of names. You can describe me a lot of ways. But don't describe me as a hypocrite. Because now you're attacking my integrity. You're now attacking who I try to be in life. Back in the days that this was written, in the Greek days, a hypocrite was basically another name or description or word for an actor. Because actors and plays back in those days, when they had them, a one particular actor might play four or five different characters with an entire play. And the way they would show whichever character they were being, they would come out and they would simply hold up a mask. And that mask is how you would know which character they were supposed to be portraying. And they began calling these actors hypocrites. They were being something that they really weren't. Look at the language Jesus uses there. For those of us who have broken relationships in our life and we're crossing our arms like this and we're standing there stubborn going, I don't mind reconciling, but it's their fault and they better go first. And we're acting more immature and more irresponsible and more dysfunctional. Jesus says, you're being nothing more than a hypocrite. Because as a follower of Jesus, we should be representing, we should be living out the same reconciliation that God did to us through his son, Jesus. So he goes, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, but you have relationships in your life that you've refused to reconcile because you're so busy pointing the finger at what, how bad they did something, he says, you know what you're being? You're an actor. You're an Emmy award-winning, Oscar award-winning actor because you claim you're a follower of Jesus, but you're not living like a follower of Jesus because you hypocrite. And then he goes on to say this. So here's what you got to do. You first, you get rid of the log in your own eye. 
So if you're one of the people that wrote an email or one of the question going, Keith, I'm feeling like I want to reconcile. God's nudging me. The Holy Spirit's nudging me, but I feel stuck in this cement. What is the first thing? What do I do just to like begin that? You look in the mirror. The first thing you do is that you look in the mirror and you look at the log in your own eye. In fact, I gave you a prayer last week that we can all pray. Here's a second prayer that'd be healthy for all of us. Heavenly Father, please show me where I'm at fault. Heavenly Father, please show me where I'm at fault. And can I give you a hint? I don't know what your situation is. I don't know what caused the broken relationship. I don't know what's causing all the consternation between you and another person. You may be going, this is a good sermon for somebody else, Keith, but if you knew my story, if you knew this situation, you would know that I'm not to blame at all on this one. Let me give you a hint. We're all to blame on a broken relationship in some way. Now, you might have not initiated it. You might have not did the big thing that crossed the line like the other person did, but we're all, we all hold some blame on a broken relationship. It could be lack of empathy, understanding the other person where they were coming from. It could be a response that you gave because of what they did. You go, well, I wouldn't respond that way if they wouldn't have done their part. There you go. You own some of the responsibility of the broken relationship. And what Jesus is trying to get across right here, he's going, you need to own your own piece of the pie. You need to just, whatever you're responsible for, you got to take a hold of ever before you begin looking at the other person. So he says, first, get rid of the log in your eye. And then look what he says next. Then you will see well enough. The minute we look in the mirror, we become much more self-aware. And self-awareness brings humility. And humility is the area where relationships flourish the most. Humility helps bring a healthy relationship. And then look what he says next. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eyes. See, here's the point that I lose people. Because you're going, oh, great. This person that you want me to reconcile with, I have to go be a martyr. I have to go fall on the sword going, I'm so sorry that we've not talked for the past two years. I'm so sorry, sister. I'm so sorry, brother. I'm sorry, sorry, son or daughter. You fill in the blank, whoever it is. But you want, I have to fall on the sword like they're responsible too. So I have to go in and go, no, I'm so sorry. That's what I've done my whole life. And that's why I don't want to try to reconcile right now. Because it's a repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse of the same thing over and over and over. Keep in mind, read this. Jesus never said that you need to be a martyr. Jesus never said you need to fall on the sword and make it all your fault. He says, when we are self-aware enough and we look in the mirror and we understand our part of it and we approach the other person in humility... That sets a healthy stage. What do he say? Then to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. See, remember, it's not about who, it's about what. And most broken relationships are hung up on the who. And we sometimes don't even remember what the what was about that we got mad about in the first place. So humility sets up a level playing field for the who's to come together. And then we can focus on the what. 
There actually may be something within the relationship. There may be a situation that needs to be pointed out to the other person. So it's not all your fault. But we've got to set the who's in order before we can ever get to the what. And so if you ask the question, Keith, okay, I've got this broken relationship. What's the first step? Jesus gives us the answer right here. He tells us to go look in the mirror. He tells us to do some self-evaluation and deal with ourselves first. And once we deal with ourselves, then we're at a healthier place to move to the other person to deal with the situation. Now, you're hearing this going, okay, this, this makes sense, but I still have some questions, Keith. I mean, this makes sense, and you're talking real generic, but I got my own relationship problem. I got my own broken relationship. I, I got some specific questions about it. So, you know, you might have got a lot of responses on last week's sermon, but you're already writing down or texting me or emailing me going, I got some questions about this one. So I'm trying to get ahead of you. I had a few questions that I'm thinking may come from you this week, so I may save you some little time on your hands that you don't have to email me this week. So here's the first question I'm supposing that might come from you. The first question is, so what is my actual first step again? Now, we all know I've said it, right? But sometimes heart of heart creates a heart of hearing. And some of our hearts are still a little bit damaged and broken, protective, and makes our hearts hardened. So let me just make it really clear. And if you're taking notes, you can write down. This is your first step. Look in the mirror. Stop looking through a window and pointing at the other person, but look at a mirror and look at what God wants to do in your own life. In fact, I wrote a quote down. It's not in your notes, but let me read it to you. It says, the more I am aware of what God has yet to do in me, the less consumed by what he has yet to do in other people around me. Let me say it one more time. The more I'm aware of what God has yet to do in me, the less I am consumed by what he has yet to do in the people around me. And so when I look in that mirror, I'm more focused on me than you. Here's in your notes, you can write this down. Right, Self-righteousness gets in the way while self-awareness paves the way. Self-righteousness gets in the way while self-awareness paves the way. And looking in the mirror makes me more self-aware. And self-aware brings humility. And humility is where relationships grow and flourish. Let me give you the second question you might have. Okay, if that's my first step, I'm listening. You've said that three or four times, Keith. What's my second step? Okay, I know I need to look in the mirror, but what's the second step of what I need to do? And here's the answer to that. Simply initiate a conversation. Some, oh, whoa, 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 that's where the conflict's going to happen. I don't want to text that person. I don't want to call that person. I don't want to do any of that. Let me just kind of pause there for a second and slow you down a bit. Because many times we are fearful to initiate a conversation because we're going, oh my gosh, that means we've got to drag all this stuff out. We have to put it on the table. I know this person is going to turn into more conflict. And so we just like, and we just shut down because of all the junk we have to deal with. When I recommend initiate a conversation for the second step, I am not recommending pulling everything out right then. Some of the broken relationships in this room are so deep and long-term that it would damage it even more to try to pull it all out in the first time. Okay, I've been looking in the mirror and I know, how, you know, I probably should have responded better. Like, you're such a bad person. If you wouldn't have been that way, I wouldn't have responded that way. But I responded bad. So can I just tell you all the bad stuff you've done and why we need to fix this? How do you think that conversation is going to go? 
Not very well. So when I say initiate a conversation, here's what I say. Think of it like dating. Can you imagine if you went on a first date, you picked the person up, y'all went and got something to drink, you went and got something to eat, and that person looks at you going, and will you marry me? You're going to slow this bus down, okay? I mean, we just on our first date. Don't ask me to marry you on the first date. We've got to get to know each other. We've got to take our time. Reconciliation looks better like a first date. It may just be a simple conversation. Sitting in the room with person may be the first step in all that needs to take place. Sending a simple text. In fact, here's one just, just quick advice I give you. You can write this down. Begin the conversation with I. You see, when we have conflict with another person, many times we naturally say, you did this. You responded this way. The minute you say you, you pull your finger out and you begin pointing and more than pointing, you're poking them in their chest. And they have no response, no other recall than to get defensive. But when you begin the conversation by owning your part, I want you to know that we haven't talked in three months and I'm sad about that. I want you to know I've done some reflection over the falling out we had. And then I realize now I'm part to blame. You see, I, uh, using the word I softens it. You own it. Again, it goes back to self-awareness. If you go first, your humility may unlock something in the other person that they can't unlock themselves. Let me say that one more time. If you go first, your humility of owning it, of using an I statement, your humility may unlock something in, in the other person that they couldn't unlock themselves. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 says this, in your relationships with one another, and can I define one another? All one another's? Not the one another's you like. Not the one another's you get along with. Not the one another's that you hope to have a house next to in heaven. All one another's. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Man, I, I think about the Lord's Supper. That, that, that meal that Jesus took with the disciples. Who all was there? the one named Judas that would betray him. But Jesus took on the nature of a servant and even washed the feet of the very one who's about to betray him unto his death. That's the nature Jesus wants us to take on to be like him. Let me close with this last question. These responses, these things going through your mind that you're getting ready to email, let me kind of circumvent the process here and here might be one. Why am I responsible for repairing the relationship. I mean, really, can you just like give this sermon to me in like some kind of um, anonymous envelope that I can pass it along the person and let them be responsible for repairing the relationship? Why does it always have to be me? And here's what I would say. The reason has to be you. The reason has to be me because it's the very essence of what it means to follow Jesus. In fact, we read the verse last week, but 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 says this, for God was in Christ. In other words, God was in heaven. He himself is a son, Jesus, the third part of the, of the Trinity. He came to this earth for God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, 
Now, we always said when there's a broken relationship, both sides have something to play in it, right? Both sides did something wrong. Let's all just agree together. When it comes to broken relationship that God has with us, it's not each party has something to do with it. God is completely pure. Okay, God is not like us. He's not human. So we all have a broken relationship because of the choices, the actions, the responses that we've made to God, about God, around God. We have that broken relationship. And God was not content with that broken relationship, even though, unlike any of us in this room, he could have stood back going, it's not my responsibility. I'm not the one that did that. I'm not the one that walked away. God truly could have crossed his arms and said, not my fault. I'll wait. They come back to me. But 2 Corinthians says this, God left heaven in the form of Jesus in order to reconcile, to take the first step to us. Even though it wasn't his responsibility, even though it wasn't his fault, he came to us and it goes on to say this, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. And so God came to me in my life and said, Keith, everything you've done, it's all on you. But I will come to you. And he says, I will no longer have a piece of paper tallying up all the things you could have, should have did wrong. I will come to you and not count any of that against you. And the Bible clearly lets me know and lets you know that we are reconciled to God because that's God's disposition. He never has and never will fold his arms up like this and wait for us. And so reality why is it our responsibility to go to another person? Because it's the very essence of Jesus living in us and through us. He has given us, the Bible says there in 2 Corinthians, this message, this great message of reconciliation. I think of the way he said that more than a message. He's given us this great gift of reconciliation. It's like God came to me and said, let me gift you, I forgive you. Let me gift you, I pull you back to me. Let me gift you, I'm not going to count the things against you. It's a gift that God gave to each of us. And his expectation is that we would take the same gift of reconciliation that he gave us. And we wouldn't hang on to it like we do some presents and gifts that we get. Oh, this is the best thing in the whole wide world. I'll hang on to it. I'll look at it every day. This has changed my life. He goes, no, no, no. This is a gift that keeps on giving. And this gift that he gave us, 2 Corinthians says, and we are expected as followers of Jesus to give it away to somebody else. That's why the responsibility is on us. Is it easy? No. Some of you last week, some of you this week, it's like this knot in your stomach because you have dealt with this broken relationship so long, whether you've ignored it or maybe you just kind of throw it away and dispose of it. But us talking about this, it comes up. And you know what it is that's making it come up? It's the Holy Spirit in you. The Holy Spirit's in you, the Holy Spirit's in me going, my desire is to draw them back in relationship. And do you know why it's really hard? Because most of the relationships that need reconciliation, they aren't some relationship from a boss that we had when we were first started working 35, 40 years ago and we're still a little mad about a decision they made and they didn't give us that race. We usually just kind of get over those and go on. 
most of the relationships that bother us so much that they're not reconciled, that they're broken, are the relationships that mean the most to us. They're the ones that we care about the most. And so God is going, I want that relationship to be a full relationship in you when possible. Again, sometimes there's relationships you just need to restore the heart and not the actual just hanging out together. But many relationships, I would say the majority of relationships that we struggle with are about being reconciled completely together. I shared with y'all last week when we started this series, my biggest fear is that someone would leave here guilty and shamed. And hear me, if you're feeling shame right now, that is not of God, that is of Satan. Because God doesn't shame. God convicts, but he doesn't shame. And here's what I want you to know. When it comes to reconciliation, for many it is a process and not an event. Like you may have somebody in your mind right now going, okay, God, I really need to do these things. But even if you took that first step, it's not going to be fixed like that. It is a process that might take days, might take weeks, might take months, might even take longer than that. But I believe as we read scripture, it is a process that God wants us to begin the journey on. Because discarding relationships, God values people, God values relationships too much for us to discard. And to simply ignore is not the way Jesus does us. So my prayer, church, is that we would simply be followers of Jesus a little step at a time and be being, begin moving to people of reconciliation. I'm going to ask you just to bow your heads where you are. I want to kind of lower my voice in talking and just allow God to speak to you for a second. Remember, if you're feeling shame, that is not of God. Conviction, nudging. Jesus said, I've come to give you life and give you life more abundantly. That means in relationships, he wants us to experience it fully. And so, Father, we come before you now. And I think I can safely say this for all of us in this room because I'm in the middle of all of us. Um, we struggle with relationships. We're hurt by relationships. We, we're scared of relationships. Um, there's just so many human emotions. So I pray this, God, regardless of emotions, that you would come and you would lead us to healthy relationships. That you would lead us to whole relationships. And even that family member, even that person who we can in our mind rationally say they don't deserve relationship. May we see them and the servanthood that Jesus saw us. So I pray for healing. I pray for restoration. God, I pray your hands 
and your heart be on all of us that we will live and love like you do. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen.